Today, the colourfully clad superhero is commonplace. Capes billowing through the blue sky, rain-soaked cows lurking on a roof, or armoured industrialists rocketing past, all fighting for what is right. These have become so commonplace and ingrained in pop culture that it's easy to assume they've been around forever. While they do share many character tropes and elements dating back thousands of years, it wasn't until 1938 that the superhero, as we would recognise them, burst forth hurling a green car on the front core of Action Comics number one. Superman literally putting the super into superhero. It could be believed that the character simply popped into the heads of the young aspiring artist team of Siegel and Schuster, and a new beat of character was born. However, as is always the case, no idea is born in isolation. Not only did it take a number of years for Superman to reach print, he, and most other superheroes, is an amalgam of a number of ideas and characters that went before. It cannot be denied that once the door was opened, it could not be closed. The creation of Superman led directly to the creation of Batman the following year, and almost all other superheroes from that point on. However, before we get too deep into the development of superheroes, I want to travel back and look at the adventurers, mystery men and creators that provided the foundation from which Superman could leap. Where did all the tropes we know so well, secret identities, hidden lairs, crazy gadgets and an unwavering moral compass, come from? What was going on in the world that it needed the man of tomorrow to save it? I'm Scott Weatherly, this is 20th Century Geek. By the start of the 20th century, the world had gone through huge change. The first industrial revolution had driven masses of people from rural areas into the cities the world over, resulting in huge populations crammed into poorly sanitised urban areas. Also, the creation of the working class, a selection of society that was slowly becoming more educated and dissatisfied with its place in the social order. This dissatisfaction was being fuelled by radical intellectuals distributing ideas of social change and how the world should be run. The second industrial revolution was in full swing with the mechanisation of production line manufacturing, thanks in no small part to Henry Ford. This second wave of industrialisation saw a number of jobs that had been created only in the previous 50 years disappear. This was a period of growing economic prosperity and development. In reality, this meant that while the working classes may have seen some improvements in general living standards, the rich got richer. This economic growth was coupled by slowing but continual imperialistic expansion. With most of the world conquered, the big empires were fighting over borders and trade routes. The desire and need to be the strongest empire in the world led to numerous small wars. In 1902, Britain won the Second Boer War, taking control of the Boer Republics in Africa, at the cost of over 25,000 Boer civilians. In 1905, Japan shockingly defeated Russia for trade and territory in Korea. This war irreparably damaged Russia's international standing, distracted it from internal conflicts and brought Japan onto the international stage as a major player. This was a disaster for Russia and is no doubt a key factor leading to the 1905 Russian Revolution and the roots of Soviet Communism. The revolution was a bell being rung loud for the world to hear. The working classes wanted change and were willing to fight for it. I use this as an example that, while extreme, does typify the feeling of a large portion of the working classes across the developed world. 
There was a shift from patriotic imperialistic growth to uneasiness in the continued stability of the social structure. On a wider scale, this scene setting provides a backdrop for the types of heroes and characters that populated fiction at the time, and who they were being created for. Heroes were not super, nor were they crime fighters. Crime was in the hands of a number of detectives, such as Sherlock Holmes, but these were intellectuals, and were in almost all cases, representatives of the middle and upper classes. In many Sherlock Holmes stories, and similar, the working classes were depicted as uneducated and brutish. However, it is in these books that we start to see some of the tropes that would become a standard in years to come. Elements of Sherlock Holmes can be traced to a number of modern superheroes. For example, his powers of deduction and reasoning become a core pillar of Batman. Also, having a nemesis that acts as a doubt reflection to the protagonist. Holmes has Moriarty, and Batman has the Joker. And let's not forget John Watson, Holmes's companion, and dare I say, sidekick? Watson acts as the reader's entry point to Holmes's world and viewpoint, but he is so much more. He becomes a sounding board, social support, and a somewhat apprentice to Holmes in many ways. These are all the traits that were mimicked by so many sidekicks time and again. Sticking with Batman, consider Robin. He was created to lighten the mood of the Batman book and provide a character that young boys, the target audience, could relate to, and he was a huge success. Robin, like Watson, is the character that is most like the reader, at least at that time, and provides a more relatable access point into the stories. Moreover, structurally, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle provides a template for so many future heroes. An individual dedicated to their cause at the expense of their own and others' well-being. Utilising special gifts to solve a problem with the support of a sidekick. The first ingredients had been added to the melting pot. Adventurer characters delivered more action-orientated stories. In Britain, these are exemplified by the gentleman big game hunter Alan Quatermain, First appearing in H. Ryder Haygard's King Solomon's Mines in 1885, his adventures were published through to 1927. Quatermain became and remained popular with people in Britain because he captured the patriotic spirit of adventure in an imperialistic British empire. He was a reminder of the country's place in the world and a glimpse into an exotic and fantastical land. However, the character is not that clear-cut. In some of the novels, it is strongly indicated that he is conflicted. He understands that what he does is affecting Africa, the country that he loves, but is resigned to the fact he does not have the skills to do anything else. In America, dime novels were incredibly popular, filled with stories from the heyday of the Wild West and how it was won. Fictional accounts of the adventures of Billy the Kid, Wild Bill Hickok and Jesse James. These tapped into the frontier spirit that had all but ended by the 20th century, at the same time, Quatermain was a representation of Britain at this time in history. While these have very few direct links to the modern superhero, other than the sense of adventure, they do act as a precursor to characters that do, such as Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter of Mars, who in turn is a prototype for Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers. The British Empire's expansion was slowing, and the West had been won. It must have felt like the real adventurers and cowboys had died out, no longer needed in an increasingly industrial world. This was the gap that Quatermain and his fellows filled. They provided a glimpse of excitement into a faraway shore or a dangerous frontier. However, 
As with Holmes, while the stories may have been readily available to all in serialised or cheap book formats, these characters of a disappearing world view struggle to provide representation or a hero for the increasingly frustrated working classes. In 1903, The Scarlet Pimpernel by Baroness Emma Auxey introduced a set of new elements into the hero melting pot. As a play, it failed to ignite interest during the first run in Nottingham, England. With some minor changes, the play ran a second time in 1905 in London's West End and received great audience, if not critical, praise. The same year, the play was turned into a novel and also received great enthusiasm, leading to numerous sequels being written well into the 1930s. The Scarlet Pimpernel is the story of the title character, an English nobleman, Sir Percy Blakeney, and his adventures in 1792, saving imprisoned fellow aristocrats from the clutches of the French Revolution. The Pimpernel is depicted as being very intelligent, a master of disguise, and skilled with the sword, able to outwit his enemies at every turn. Whilst this is very swashbuckling, it again highlights the need of the time to entertain the right class of people and isn't exactly representing the masses. He was a protector of the nobility against the revolutionary peasantry. Despite this, there are so many things to consider in this character. First and foremost is the Pimpernel's use of a secret identity. In order to shift suspicion, his everyday persona, Sir Percy Blakeney, is that of a foppish playboy coward. This has become so cliché today that it has been parodied on a number of occasions. Yet, this is where it all begins. When fans argue over who is the real persona, Batman or Bruce Wayne, Clark Kent or Superman, and how is it people can't see that they're the same person, you have Baroness Auxy to thank. The other things worth noting are the calling card the Pimpernel leaves following an act of daring do. A small scarlet Pimpernel flower, hence the name, and the reason for leaving the flower? To let people know that he had been there, and beaten them without knowing, and in so he would, people would fear him in the future. This is an early example of the utilisation of a calling card or symbol to elicit a response. Fear, hope or patriotism, something that later became the core of the Nolan Batman trilogy. People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne. As a man, I'm flesh and blood, I can be ignored, I can be destroyed, but as a symbol, as a symbol, I can be incorruptible. I can be everlasting. Finally, is the use of a supporting network of people to help him pull off escapades. It was clear to creators then, as now, one person talking to themselves get boring very quickly. This was another reason Robin was introduced. But more than just a sidekick, consider the popularity of team comics today. There is no such thing as the lone vigilante. At their best, everyone from Batman and Superman to Moon Knight and Deadpool have support networks that provide unique and vital skills. The successor to the Pimpernel was created in 1919, a hero that truly fought for the poorest people. Almost the counter to the Pimpernel is Zorro. Created by Johnston McCulley and first appearing in what was intended to be a one-off story, The Curse of Capistrano. The story's popularity resulted in a film based on the novel the following year and a sequel in 1922. The sequel is an early example of something that all modern comic fans are used to. Retconning. As I mentioned, the first book was intended to be 
a one-off and ends with Zoro's identity being revealed. However, for the follow-up, this is completely ignored and the heroics continue. Zoro was designed from the outset to be a hero for the masses, to avenge the helpless, to punish cruel politicians and aid the oppressed in 1820s California. Note again the historical setting for the year he was created. While being the counter to the Pimpernel in his social objectives, Zorro shares much more. They are both noblemen using a foppish alter ego to hide their true nature, and as described, have a similar look and are superior swordsmen, and of course Zorro has his own calling card. The sword inscribed Z. In fact, Bob Kane later acknowledged the influence of Zorro on the creation of Batman. It should be noted that between 1903 and 1919, a lot had changed and Zorro was a hero of his time. Despite being set a hundred years before, each of the above mentioned characters remains stuck in a period of history. They are either throwbacks to what was perceived as a more romantic time, such as the Scarlet Pimpernel and Zorro, or become stuck, a representation of a better time in a world that is struggling with itself. It should be noted that neither Sherlock Holmes nor Alan Quatermain ever made it into the 20th century, despite being published well into the 1920s. These characters and creators laid the foundations for the following generation to take the next step on the journey. In addition to the stories they would have been exposed to as children, the next generation were also going to be strongly influenced by something else. In 1914, the world descended into war. A war unlike anything that had been fought before and would claim the lives of millions. I won't cover the complex causes of the war as they have no real bearing on our story. But the impact of the war, on the other hand, is incredibly important. And Zorro was just the beginning. The First World War started to break down social boundaries and shattered the illusion of an honourable war. A world that had been growing suffered a seismic shift and many Western countries moved towards a more isolationist foreign policy. While Europe started picking up the pieces, America and its president Woodrow Wilson decided that it didn't want to be involved in other countries' problems, and then there were other, enough issues at home to deal with. The country became a dichotomy of morals and desire. There was an aspiration to make the country a better, more moral place. There was also a desire to forget the war years and focus on enjoyment and fun. Unfortunately, the extreme nature in which both of these developed resulted in further social and economic strife, and the almost complete collapse of the world economy. In 1920, two years after the war ended, women were guaranteed the vote, a result of the suffragette movement and women entering the workplace during the war years more than ever before. In the same year, prohibition was introduced. Considered by its proponents, the Dry Crusader groups, the Anti-Saloon League and the Women's Christian Union, to be a victory for public morals and health. This moral self-righteousness and desire to make America great again extended to tighter migration laws and resurgent to the membership of the Ku Klux Klan. This was fuelled by racial and stereotyping propaganda. In 1924, the US Immigration Act was passed, which limited the number of immigrants from South America and Europe, but also completely prohibited entry to Asia and in Indian immigrants. While people at the time painted it as a chance to heal and recover, many saw it as America turning its back on the world. However, this wasn't simply a decade of doom and gloom. This was, after all, the Roaring Twenties. 
If something is prohibited, then people are going to find a way to make money from it. And make money they did. The 1920s saw a massive expansion in the size and power of organised crime. These groups controlled the manufacture and distribution of alcohol through illegal speakeasies and saloons. People were looking to get over the war with fun and the criminal gangs were more than willing to provide the means for a price. As the decade progressed, the economy continued to grow. People were doing well and America was getting back on its feet. There was a sense of prosperity and wealth that most didn't think would end. By the mid to late 20s, even professional economists were predicting that this was a great period of boom and that advances in manufacturing and the growth of consumer goods would mean that this boom period would never end. So does this reflect in the heroes of the time? As I have already mentioned, many of the pre-war heroes continued to see popularity. Both Holmes and Quatermain had their last outing in 1927. Zorro also did well during this period, appearing in two films and a 1922 sequel to the 1919 book. Other notable heroes that have come to some success are Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter of Mars and Tarzan. It should be noted, however, that both are pre-war creations. John Carter first appeared in A Princess of Mars in 1911, and the world of John Carter was explored in 13 stories from his creation to the 1940s. He is a Confederate soldier who is transported to Mars to fight a host of different aliens and creatures. The books are a series of frontier adventures with a science fiction twist. However, of the 13 stories published, only three were published during the 1920s. Tarzan first swung into action in Tarzan of the Apes in 1912 and appeared in 24 books overall. A key thing to note about Tarzan is that despite being a man of the jungle and adventure character, when his roots are discovered, he is found to be an English duke, yet another hero with his roots in the aristocracy. Again, of the 24 books published, only seven were released during the 1920s. It can be strongly argued that both John Carter and Tarzan are a continuation of the hearkening back to imperialist and frontier characters. In fact, only one hero of note is created during this decade. Buck Rogers, who makes his first appearance in 1928's Armageddon 2419 AD. However, it is not much of a leap from John Carter, a soldier being transported to Mars, to Buck Rogers, exposed to strange gases, falling into suspended animation and waking in a changed future world. Despite the minor changes, this is simply another adventure character lost on a different frontier. To focus on the lineage of John Carter and Buck Rogers, we can see huge influences in the future of intergalactic superheroes. Humans thrust onto an alien frontier and bring in their own sense of justice. We can highlight Adam Strange, Green Lantern, Nova or even Star-Lord. As recently as 2014 in Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy, we see Chris Pratt's Peter Quill, Star-Lord, taken from his home environment as a child to go on an adventure on an unknown distant frontier. And how can we forget the start of every Star Trek episode? Space, the final frontier. These science fiction heroes have had a massive influence on modern interstellar heroes, but did they have an impact in the 1920s? As I have highlighted, the number of stories published for these characters is few. In fact, during the 1920s, we see the end of major pre-war characters and the slow start of newer ones. While the positivity created by the economic growth 
did start to lead to creators looking to new frontiers. The masses of the decades were not looking for a hero. Too many heroes had died in the trenches of Europe, and people wanted to focus on themselves and the indulgence of life. I believe that without the historic shift that befalls America and the Western world in 1929, superheroes and hero characters in general would have taken a very different route. At the end of the decade, following years of overconfidence and uncontrolled growth, the economy collapsed and drove millions of people into poverty. There were a number of factors building throughout the 1920s that led to the events that kicked off on October 24, known as Black Thursday, and came to a crashing finale on October 29th, Black Tuesday. Between these two dates occurred the stock market crash, a seismic shift in world history that would have implications that would be felt for years. The heydays of the Roaring Twenties came to an abrupt and devastating end. Despite efforts to demonstrate confidence in the stock market by powerful players such as the Rockefellers, the slide could not be prevented. The result was the Western world being driven into the Great Depression and millions of people joining the poverty line. In fact, unemployment would fluctuate between 15 and 20% for the next decade. In all difficult situations, there are people that find a way to make money. In this case, the crime organisations that had been growing in power in the 20s found ways to diversify. I'm sure you've heard of Al Capone, the king of organised crime, whose heyday was the late part of the 1920s. After an intense investigation that could be described as a war, he was finally arrested for tax evasion in 1931, a victory for law and order. However, the actions of both the criminals and law enforcement leading up to this arrest had a wearing effect on a nation that was already browbeaten by prohibition and the years of depression. Prohibition was finally withdrawn in 1933 in order to try and inject money back into the economy. This, as well as other measures, started America on a long path back to stability. However, the ongoing gang and police gun battles spread, becoming part of common culture. This was accompanied by people being driven to do what was needed to survive, believing that they were on their own, lost in the mix of violence and economic struggle. People started taking the law into their own hands, both breaking and enforcing the law. There are numerous accounts of people lynching other people suspected of a crime, whether they were known to be guilty or not. This was a country in desperate need of hope and inspiration, and creators responded with a new type of hero. Detective and mystery fiction was very successful in the 1920s in multiple mediums, but especially in the growing medium of radio broadcasting. The publishing company Street and Smith had specialised in inexpensive pulp books and magazines since the start of the century. They covered different genres, but the most popular were the detective stories usually in which the criminals got what was coming to them in a hard-hitting fashion. In 1930, they branched out to participate in the growing world of radio with The Detective Hour, an hourly radio drama introduced by an omnipresent narrator. The narrator was called The Shadow and was given an intro catchphrase.
Within months of the show hitting the airwaves, people started asking for more from The Shadow. Will he appear in his own show, or in a weekly magazine? Street and Smith noticed the demand, and like the shrewd businessmen they were, asked one of the staff writers, Walter B. Gibson, to write a series of stories for the pulps. And soon after, on April 1st, 1931, The Shadow number 1 was on the newsstands, and it stayed there for a further 325 stories. While Gibson is the major contributor to The Shadow, writing 285 of the 325 stories, he had to write under a house pseudonym, Maxwell Grant, in case he was not able to make the deadlines. But Gibson was dedicated to his creation and added a number of aspects to the character that would later be used in more modern superheroes. Initially, The Shadow was a mysterious puppet master, and not even the main protagonist of his own stories choosing to use a network of agents to combat crime in many different guises. Over time, he moved to the forefront of the stories, but remained no less mysterious. For example, the Shadow's true identity was not revealed for many years. He was a figure in dark clothes, with his face hidden by a scarlet scarf and a large-brimmed hat, packing a pair of pistols. Even when his identity was revealed, it was only revealed to the reader, Many of his agents and other characters were kept in the dark. The secret identity most commonly associated with the Shadow is Lamont Cranston, New York playboy about town. However, this is a misdirection. While in the Shadow universe there is a Lamont Cranston, he is another agent whose identity the Shadow uses when he needs to be present in New York life. The Shadow is actually a former World War I pilot, Kent Allard, who has been assumed dead for many years. The Shadow is a dark evolution of the Scarlet Pimpernel and Zorro, a crime fighter defending the people who could not defend themselves with deadly force. The traits are all in place, highly intelligent, skilled in tactics and weapons, with a signature look as well as the catchphrases and laugh which were utilised to cast fear into the hearts of criminals. The Shadow is a more deadly proto-Batman. In fact, in Batman 253 from 1973, the two meet, and in a truly meta moment, Batman acknowledges the influence the Shadow had on him. For the people reading the pulp stories or listening to the Shadow's radio show, they were given a character that was fighting for them. A vicarious hero through which they could fight back and take control of the world around them. Because the pulps were not regulated, or even seen as very important, the creators had the freedom to create more lurid and explicit tales that could be distributed through other mediums. The Shadow spawned a host of similar competing characters. The Spider, or New York socialite Richard Wentworth, who dealt justice with deadly force and disfigured his captors with a Spider brand, something copied as recently as 2016's Batman vs Superman. The Shadow spawned a host of similar competing characters. The Spider, or New York socialite Richard Wentworth, who dealt justice with deadly force and disfigured his captors with a spider brand, something copied as recently as 2016's Batman vs Superman. Or the Black Bat, a mafia lawyer who is double-crossed and blinded only to have his eyes replaced and don a black cowl and cape in order to take revenge and atone for his previous crimes. Remember, this was the 1930s, and already we are seeing clichés being heavily repeated. 
that they are still common and successful today. The Black Bat in particular highlights something that will become a pillar of future superhero types. A hero out of tragedy. Not just Batman, think Daredevil, The Punisher or Green Arrow. There are so many more, but in the 1930s there is one I would like to highlight, The Avenger. The Avenger was Richard Henry Benson, a globe-trotting adventurer and family man who witnessed his family killed in a tragic plane accident and was so horrified that he lost the use of the muscles in his face. He used this disability to manipulate his face and create disguises and with a team of supporters he led an incredibly violent crusade on international crime. The Avenger was a dark and violent character created by Paul Ernst under the house pseudonym Kenneth Robertson, again for Street and Smith, and an early incarnation of the Punisher? The name, Kenneth Robertson, was also used on another pulp hero, Doc Savage. Doc was actually created, also for Street and Smith, by Lester Dent in 1933. While the other heroes mentioned have all been more on the dark side, fighting with violence from the shadows, all figures of fear, Doc Savage was designed to represent the best of what mankind could be. He was developed from a child to be the best of the best, both physically and mentally, working in the sun resulting in a deep tan and the moniker of the Man of Bronze. That's right, before there was a Man of Steel, there was a Man of Bronze. Doc's stories were adventures in which he and his team of five were thrown into a situation with a little lead-up, usually because of the machinations of some supervillain. Doc Savage as a character stands apart from many other characters created in the early to mid-thirties. While there was some violence in the stories, Doc himself refused to use guns, unless it was a last resort, preferring to use his own two fists or some form of ingenuity. Seriously, Doc was MacGyver before MacGyver. Being an international adventurer dedicated to the destruction of evildoers can be stressful. And where does the Man of Bronze go to relax? How about an arctic hideaway that he called his Fortress of Solitude? That's right, before Superman created his, Doc was already developing arctic real estate. In fact, I'll go one further. I have stated that the Shadow is a proto-Batman, and I'm now proposing that Doc Savage is actually a proto-Superman. He is the first Super Boy Scout. He was a figure of hope. A character showing that there is a different way, and that being better is possible. For those people that were in desperate need of hope, Doc was an example for them. He used his skills not for punishment and vengeance, but to develop, develop science and defend people. An aspirational character trying to guide people into the light. Before Batman and Superman became the brave and the bold, Street and Smith had a first pairing of the light and the dark heroes in The Shadow and Doc Savage. In the five years between the debut of Doc Savage and the debut of Superman, there was one more development worth noting. In 1933, Eastern Colour Printing Company requested something to be used as a giveaway that could contain adverts for their products. Max C. Gaines created a format for short stories, usually printed in newspapers, that he called Famous Funnies. This became the standard format for future comics and Gaines became co-publisher of All-American Publications, which eventually became a part of Detective Comics. 
Gaines also went on to found Educational Comics, which later abbreviated to EC Comics. Heroes were given a new and exciting medium in which to take off. It should also be noted that during this time the economy improved, but the world was travelling down a politically dark path, which led to a host of flag-wearing political and propaganda characters being developed. Seriously, Captain America is just the tip of a very jingoistic iceberg, but it cannot be denied that they can all trace a lineage back to these pulp heroes, and earlier. So when you sit down to watch the next Marvel or DC cinematic outing, or enjoy the next issue of your superhero of choice, just stop for a moment and consider the elements and roots of that character. Whether they are, are men and women of mystery, or bold and bright figures of aspiration, consider the influences of a daring English aristocrat, a Victorian London detective, a Civil War soldier on the shores of Mars, a twin gun-toting shadow of vengeance, or even the Man of Bronze. All these are in the melting pot from which the best of modern superheroes were born. As well as being the early evolution of the superhero, they haven't disappeared. Dynamite Comics are currently running several pulp character series that are excellent, and reprints of many of the pulp series can be found on Amazon or eBay. If you want to know more about these routes or specific characters, please check the show notes or simply Google them, which will direct you to a host of fan sites. In a future episode, I intend to revisit the pulp characters and explore their movie resurgence of the early 90s. For now, though, thank you for listening and I hope you will join me again in the future. I'm Scott Weatherly, and this has been 20th Century Geek.